I'm not pulling out of the driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work at home edition. So today I have Ian Duke here. He was the set lead for Wilds of Eldraine. And we're going to talk all about Wilds of Eldraine. Hey, Ian. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so uh, last week I talked with Chris Mooney all about the vision design. So we're going to pick up our story at the beginning of set design. Okay, so let me talk about, I'm going to just bring components and then we're going to talk about how, how you adapted those components. How does that sound? Sounds great. Okay, so let's start with what I consider the heart of the design, roles. So when roles were handed over, they were tokens, they were aura tokens, uh, but we handed over, I think, 10 plus, there were a lot of them, more so than ended up in the set. Uh, so how did you handle tokens, roll tokens? Yeah, yeah. so we, we knew we wanted rolls to be a major part of the set. We knew that um, having enchantment aura tokens was a new thing to magic, largely speaking, especially having this many in the same set. And we knew they were kind of the uh, a central quality to the set. They interacted with a lot of the different mechanics and different limited archetypes. So we knew they, they would be a core thing, but there were a couple big open questions. And some of those questions included how many roles should there be? You know, what should those roles be? What are they representing? And then sort of how powerful should they be? What sorts of things should they be doing? How, how disparate should the power level of the different roles be? And these were all known questions in the sense that, you know, when Mark and, and Chris handed off to me, um, we kind of knew the, all these things would be in flux throughout the process. So it was uh, the job of myself and my team to figure out, you know, these questions, how many roles should there be? What should they do? All that sort of thing. Okay. So let's start by tackling the power level issue you talked about. So there's two ways to do roles. One of which is they're all different power levels, meaning if you cast the role like by itself, it would cost a different amount of mana or they're all the same. And basically there's a thin band of power so that they're all in the same band. How did you figure out which of those two paths to take? Uh, mostly through trial and error. I think the big question is that um, there's a certain amount of inherent power in creating a role because it, you are creating a permanent, you're having something enter the battlefield, and then you can use that role for other purposes, like sacrificing it, like getting credit for an enchantment entering the battlefield, and things like that. So there's kind of this base power level, even before you get into what the role does, of just creating the role is already doing something for you. And then on top of that, you know, how powerful the role itself is can kind of scale up and down. So early on, we experimented with some that were much more powerful than others. I, I can't think of any exact examples off the top of my head. Um, but as we iterated on it, we found that if we wanted to tune things around that sort of basic power level of the role being an enchantment permanent itself, you know, something that you could use as sacrifice fodder or get credit for enchantment uh, triggers, we decided over time that we wanted them to be more in that sort of narrower band of power that you were describing, and that way we could tune everything around each of the roles kind of behaving similarly uh, as it interacts with all the different set mechanics. So what we decided to do was figure out um, how we could have a variety in what the different roles were doing in different ways, but have them all be relatively similar in power level. And so one example of that is several of the roles that appear at uh, frequently at the common level for limited play, um, each give a creature plus one, plus one, and then a little bonus on top of that, like scry one when you attack, or ward one, or also giving trample, things like that. So it's easy to see that you know, those three examples are all in a similar similar power level to band to each other. That's not to say that they're all identical in power level, um, but we wanted to kind of narrow down the gap a little bit compared to how things handed off in Vision. Yeah, another thing that was a big deal for us in Vision that I know you guys had to care about was we wanted the auras to go in different creatures, right? We didn't want 
all of them to want to go on the same creature. We wanted, like, different auras were better when used in different ways. How did you guys handle that? Yeah, a couple things there. So we, we wanted to divide up the, the roles into kind of almost a little bit of a color pie um, in the sense that, uh, you know, like, for example, white and green are good at making the royal role. The sorcerer role appears more in blue and so on. Uh, we want to make sure that each color had representation among uh, the roles that it could create. Um, and also that the roles kind of felt flavorfully embedded in the color pie and locked into kind of what that that color wanted to do. For example, the the wicked role, you know, causing a loss of life is something that works really well in the black red deck. So in that sense, they kind of each have their own identity um, within the colors and within what's going on in the different strategies throughout the set. Now, how did you figure out the number? I mean, like I said, we handed over, I think there were 10 in the in the handoff document, which... Uh, I posted online, by the way, for people who want to see. Uh, part one went up this week, and part two should go up next week. So, uh, yeah, anyway. The, the, the number of roles was also something we iterated on. Um, like you said, we started a little bit high, knowing that we might want to come down over time. And we did find that we did want to come down a little bit over time. Um, Part of the reason for coming down in the number a little bit of it was that sort of standardizing the power level of them a little bit um, or bringing them more into that kind of narrower power level band. But the other big thing was just um, the complexity and sort of the, the mental load uh, that they took on. We knew that roles were going to be, you know, one of the central mechanics of the set, but also a place where we were sort of spending more of our complexity points, if you will, in the sense that there's a little bit more to learn with roles than there are with the other mechanics. Um, so we knew it would take some time to learn what each of the different roles do and if we had too many then that that sort of ramp up period of learning what's going on in the set would take a little bit too long um so we found that six uh six roles in the main set and then i think there's one or maybe two more in the in the commander set was about the right number where you felt like there was variety you felt like the roles were representing different characters and doing different things but also it wasn't too many to learn all at once it wasn't too overall mentally taxing so we kind of hit the sweet spot there yeah, another thing we did in Vision is I think we stretched a little more and tried more different things. For example, I think we handed over some roles that had tap ability, you know, that granted tap abilities. And I think one of our roles went on artifacts, you know, turned them into a creature. Um, and I, you guys definitely, solid, like, you, you simplified a little bit and sort of cut off some of the more extraneous stuff. Yeah, we felt that the roles that sort of enhance the, the the basic function, the basic power level of what the creature is already doing were the most fun ones, um, you know, kind of the flavor of transforming that creature into this character. And also it made for um, kind of more dynamic uh, gameplay as well in, in keeping the creature doing what it was doing rather than transforming it into something that's doing something else entirely, but always doing that same thing. Okay, so once the roles existed, uh, the next thing is... Roles allowed us to do something that we don't normally get to do, which is Enchantment Matters is a really tough theme to do, especially with auras, just because of the card disadvantage. Um, but now that you are making roles, so you're not, there's no card disadvantage, right? You, when you lose the aura, you're not losing the card that generates it necessarily. Um, so we decided that we wanted to create a mechanic that allowed you to make use of, as you said, the auras as an object. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, about Bargain. Um, and when we turned over Bargain, you could sacrifice an artifact or enchantment. That's what we turned over. 
Yeah, and that was one of the actual early changes we made to Bargain was expanding it a little bit so you could sacrifice any token. Um, one of the designers on my team, James Rose, just had the suggestion after an early playtest saying like, hey, you know, most of our artifacts and enchantments in the set are tokens anyway. Can we just expand this and make it work with all tokens? That just kind of makes it a little bit easier to remember, you know, one one token works the same as a roll, works the same as a treasure token or a food token. Uh, and we really liked that idea. So we tried it out and it, it did make the the uh, mechanic play better and was also a little bit easier for folks to learn. Uh, but overall, uh, Bargain's a, a relatively straightforward one. Um, it's sort of like a, a kicker-like mechanic, except the kicker is always the same thing of, you know, sacrificing artifact enchantment or token. And it's very flavorful, you know, making a deal with, you know, the 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 wicked goblin in the woods or the, the wicked witch or what have you um, fits in very well with the, the storytelling theme of the set um, and obviously works really, really well with roles uh, and other set themes like food that I mentioned earlier. Was there anything, from a set design standpoint, what, what were the challenges of making Bargain? Uh, Bargain was actually probably one of the easier ones. I don't think it changed, beyond the expanding it to work with any token, uh, I don't think it changed too much over the course of the uh, set development process. Um, I guess one of the one of the major tasks was integrating it into what the the colored pair themes were doing in Unlimited. Um, so, for example, the white black theme is the one that uses bargain the most. And so we wanted to figure out, okay, how can we make you care about the fact that you're doing bargains? You know, how, you know, not it's not just like getting more bargain cards in your deck, but also rewarding you for that. So we built in um, sort of various things like uh, triggers when enchantments go to the graveyard from the battlefield. So you could either have an aura on your creature and your creature dies, and that will count for it, or you could sacrifice a roll to bargain bargaining and that will count for it. So white black is sort of about bargaining and about things going to the graveyard and maybe coming back from the graveyard. And that kind of all ties in together. Okay. So the next mechanic we'll talk about, you just brought up, which is food. Um, it's interesting. I, my memory of what we handed off, uh, cause I just did uh, Chris's handoff document. So, um, so we actually did hand off food as being an archetype. I had not remembered that. Um, so what, what are the challenges of food? I, food obviously was in Throne of Eldraine, and I know it, it caused some limited concerns in Throne of Eldraine. So what, yeah. were, the, what were the challenges of, of set design of that? So food's a lot of fun. You know, everybody loves gaining life and it's very flavorful making these food tokens and ties in, you know, with various fairy tale themes and stuff like that. So we knew we wanted a presence of food in the set, but you have to be careful with food because it is a life gain mechanic. And when you have too much life gain going on in a format, it can prolong the games. It could also create situations where the aggressive decks either need to win early or they can't win at all because the other deck will just kind of pull out of range uh, with the additional life gain that they're getting from all the food. So we wanted to have enough food to feel like it had a presence in the set but not too much that it would have a warping effect on the limited environment and the vision team was actually um, pretty conservative on that front um, chris was very hesitant to hand off uh food being a major theme for any of the color pairs and, and for really good reason there but as i took a look at the set structure a little bit more and we thought about it a little bit more we felt that we could add a little bit more of a food presence than vision handed off as long as we were careful to make sure that not all of the food was being sacrificed to gain life so our big innovation there was to to make sure we had enough other cards that are giving you other things to do with your food rather than just the natural sacrificing it to gain life. So bargain played in, into the role there uh, and also just uh, numerous individual cards that are giving you other things to do with your food, you know, sacrificing food to pump up your creatures, uh, tapping your food for mana, various things like that we experimented with. And after putting those uh, sort of systems into place, 
we were able to slightly ramp up the amount of food that we have and bake it into what some of the limited archetypes are doing a little bit more. Uh, in particular, the green-black archetype is sort of a mid-range food deck, but it's using the food for other things beyond just gaining life. Okay, so uh, the next mechanic I want to talk about is a returning mechanic, like food. Uh, so adventures, I think we knew, I mean, from like day one of vision design that adventures were going to come back. They were the highest rated mechanic from our first visit there. Um, so th there's two things we handed over from vision design to you guys. One was the idea of off-color adventures. Uh, and the other thing was the idea of adventures on enchantments because there was an enchantment theme. So let's talk a little bit about uh, making making adventures. What were the challenges yeah. of that? <laughs> Just like you said, Mark. So, yeah, we knew we wanted to bring back adventures. They were a lot of fun for the first Eldraine. Uh, some of the adventures in the first Eldraine were a little bit on the powerful side, too. So we were keeping that in mind as well. Uh, I think this time around we have a better better handle on our um, the power level of adventures. Sorry, I got to ice cream truck in the background here if you can hear that but uh, it just passed by um so yeah so we were a little bit more cognizant of the exact power level of the, of the adventures this time around and also we knew we wanted to put a spin on it that was a little bit different this time um so as you said we have the what we call off-color adventures where the the color of the spell is different from the color of the creature and also uh we wanted to put adventure on enchantments which ended up turning into the mythic cycle of the virtues as well um so yeah mostly mostly adventure went pretty smoothly throughout the process um one of the things that we did do with the off-color adventures that I thought was interesting is we made sure that a lot of the power was in the creature portion. And what that does is, since there's 10 different color pairs, 10 different co two-color combinations, and there's only eight drafters at a typical draft pod, uh, that means that at least two of the color pairs are going to go undrafted in any given draft. Uh, so what we wanted to do is make sure that there weren't these multicolor adventure creatures just floating around endlessly because no one was in that color pair. So what we did was we made the, the basic creature just about on rate to the point where, uh, you know, even if there's no green-blue drafter, if there's a green creature with a blue adventure and it's going around, you know, 10th or 11th pick, somebody will just pick it up just to play the creature portion of it. And do adventure... I mean, whenever you have two spells in one spell, I mean, what what are the, the challenges of that? From a, from a balance standpoint. Yeah, so the biggest thing is just that it's it's inherently a card advantage mechanic, um, and you can run into trouble if there's too much card flow, you know, if player, players are never running out of things to do, or, you know, just always having an endless stream of, you know, spells and creatures to cast. Um, so we wanted to be just a little bit careful of that. So one of the things we did with adventures in this set is we tried to make the adventure effects in general a little bit on the smaller side, not to say that they're weak, but just that oftentimes they're not worth a full card of value. And what that let us do is have the adventures have effects that we, you know, typically don't put on, you know, whole magic cards because the effect is, is maybe not worth an entire card or it's a little bit too weak or a little bit too narrow. But by putting them on adventure creatures, you know, you still always have the creature you can cast if the effect isn't useful, or you can just get that little tiny effect and then transition that into the creature afterwards and you're not down a card in the process. So it kind of expanded uh, the range of spell-like effects that we could use in the set, which was really cool. Yeah, another thing I know you guys did is Throne of Eldraine did a bunch of cards that kind of rewarded you for just playing lots and lots of adventures, and you guys kind of shied away from that. Yeah, we found that adventures were kind of more fun when every deck is using a few of them rather than they're all concentrated in the same deck that's getting lots of rewards for them because adventures are kind of already rewards 
in and of themselves, right? Because you're, you're getting this additional spell, plus you're getting the creature, you're up, if not a full card, a portion of a card in the process. So we felt like we didn't really need to reward you that much uh, for using adventures specifically. However, there are plenty of adventures that do tie into the various set themes and the various different limited archetypes. For example, our blue-red archetype cares about casting instants and sorceries. So by having adventure creatures in your deck, you're, you're quietly upping the count, the density of the instants and sorceries in your deck without lowering the density of creatures in your deck too much. So things like that worked out really well. And um, obviously, you know, um, like white black uh caring about things dying or whatever is kind of good with adventure creatures because you know if your adventure creature dies after you've already gotten some value from the adventure you're a little bit more okay with that so various ways like that where the adventure creatures kind of hook into the different archetypes themselves okay so we have one more named mechanic uh celebration so vision did hand off this theme we didn't name it and um the big biggest difference i think is what we handed off to you was and it was only on red and white cards. It just said every time a non-land, it was a non-land permanent. Every time a non-land yeah. permanent enters the battlefield, it would trigger. So it it was rather than what you guys. We'll talk about how you changed it, but the version we did was a little more like it would trigger a bunch rather than trigger once. Yeah, it was what I thought of in my mind as like non-land fall. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so the idea of it was cool because it definitely works well with rolls. It works well with kind of adventure creatures upping the, the 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 permanent count because they're kind of both spells and creatures at the same time. So it definitely made sense in the set. Um, the reason we made the change over from the original one was scaling with each non-land that entered in the turn. Uh, so you could get multiple triggers in the same turn. So for example, if you played a creature that also made a roll, you would get two triggers. And we found that the scaling was just a little bit too hard to balance because some, some turns you were getting, you know, zero or one trigger, other turns you were getting two or three triggers. So there aren't too many effects where you could, you know, get three times as much of it in one turn and it's still a reasonable thing to give you. Uh, so we decided to go with, uh, a threshold of two. So if you're able to get two uh, uh, non-lands onto the battlefield in the same turn, then you get the full effect, and that let us make the effects you know, a little bit more exciting and a little bit more balanced because we knew exactly what you were going to be getting rather than having this uh, scaling thing. Okay, the last thing uh, of mechanics, uh, this uh, not a named one, or I guess it's named, but um, we did sagas. Um, now, sagas are deciduous, so, I mean, lots of sets these days do sagas. Um, I think what we handed over is 10 sagas, I forget whether they were rare or uncommon, I think they were rare, uh, that represented each of the 10 f uh, fairy tales that we were tying to our archetypes. Um, and I believe nine of those didn't make it to print, so... Yeah, we ended up with one leftover, which was the blue-red one that's associated with our sort of uh, uh, incident and sorcery uh, archetype. Um, yeah, so there, there, were, there were 10 sagas cycled out, um, I'm not sure if the cycle was totally complete at handoff, but like the idea of the cycle was there, and I think there were at least placeholders for them in the file. And the idea was that the ten of those would would tell the story, uh, the same story uh, that the that archetype, that color pair was doing in the set. And it was sort of um, through collaboration with our art and creative team, and also just kind of you know working with the set design team, we kind of figured out that we we didn't need those individual cards to tell those stories, and that the stories were better told on the collection of cards that were meant for that archetype so one of the things that we we did early on is we partnered with our creative team and figured out okay what are the 10 stories that we want to tell uh there's going to be one for each of the two color pairs and then what we did 
uniquely through this process is early on we identified the cards that were sort of meant for that color pair or leaning a little bit more toward that color pair's play and limited and we identified them early for our very first art wave and then we commissioned art you know and and gave them a creative treatment to be associated with that story so from the very early portions of set design we knew sort of which cards were going to be associated with with which stories and sort of a little bit about how the creative treatment would turn out which is you know a unique thing oftentimes that doesn't get settled till much later on in the process so once we had that and uh in terms of the set structure and we that each color pair was telling a story through a variety of different cards um we decided that we didn't need an individual card also telling that same story so we decided to kind of free up the room at the higher rarities uh, from that cycle and i think what we might have done with that is created space to have a cycle of multicolored adventure creatures uh, kind of in those slots as well. However, we did end up really liking the, this, the play pattern of the blue red one as an individual card. So that one ended up sticking throughout the process. Okay. So let's get to the, the archetypes, the fairy tale archetypes. Uh, that was one of the big sort of structures handed off. Um, the idea that one of the things that we've done in the past is creative is definitely flavored different archetypes. That That's something that we've done. Um, but this was a little tighter than normal. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about sort of, I just want to walk through the archetypes and talk about the making of the archetype. So I'm just going to go in, in uh, color pie order. So let's start with white blue, which was the snow queen. What, what were the challenges of making the snow queen work as an archetype? Yeah, this is probably the most unique one out of all of them. Um, Vision handed off a theme of getting rewarded for tapping the opponent's creatures, which is something that we really haven't done anything like that as far as a supported limited theme. Uh, obviously, every set has you know a couple cards here and there that tap a creature or tap and stun a creature, things like that. Uh, but we've never really supported it as a theme, so it was kind of up in the air of like you know how fun is this going to be? You know how should we make this work? How, how do we want the the rest of the deck to play out beyond just getting the rewards for tapping? things. So we decided pretty early on that we didn't want it to be a slow and controlling deck because that's pretty miserable if, you know, one deck is just sitting there tapping down the opponent's creatures, the other the other deck can't attack. So we wanted it to, to be more of a, a tempo deck where maybe you're holding down the fort with, you know, ground creatures and tapping the opponent's creatures and then you're attacking them back with flyers. So we went a little bit more toward that tempo angle where the game will actually end uh, if, if the blue-white deck is doing its thing. Okay, next up, blue-black is Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, so this was what we knew we wanted to be our sort of fairy typal deck where, you know, you get some rewards for having fairy creature types. But we were a little bit skittish about the idea of having a, a creature typal deck where all of the creatures fly because all the creature, uh, all the fairies fly on Eldraine. Um, so in order to kind of facilitate that, we wanted to layer in another strategy on top of, you know, it's not just you're having a bunch of fairies, you're going wide and attacking in the air. Um, that wouldn't play very well. It's kind of like two ships passing in a night, right? One, one player is attacking with a bunch of flyers. The other player can't block and they have no choice but to attack back. And then the fairies themselves aren't good at blocking. So we didn't want to promote that dynamic too much. So we decided to take blue-black a little bit more in a traditional control deck direction. So what we did is we made a lot of the fairies work well in a control deck. And then we put in, obviously, spells that help you control the game, like creature removal and card draw spells. So you'll play all those things together. And at the end of the day, you'll feel like, oh, I have a lot of fairies in my deck and I have a, a couple rewards for having fairies but it's not about going wide with a bunch of flyers it's more about sort of controlling the game and then eventually you win with a couple flying fairies okay next up black red the pied piper of hamlin 
Yeah, this was a really fun one. So the Vision's idea was to have 1-1 uh, rat tokens that can't block, which actually solves a lot of the problems that we've had in the past with token strategies where tokens had to come up the board. And one of the things that they're really good at is just chump blocking a big creature that's attacking, which can prolong the game and kind of make board states bog down. But by having tokens that couldn't block, it's very obvious what should you be doing with them. You should be attacking with them. So we made the deck very aggressive. Uh, it can go wide with tokens. It gets benefits for having lots of creatures, but also benefits for or your creatures dying, which means that even if your opponent has some blockers, you can kind of swarm around their blockers with this, you know, big, big, wide army full of rats and other uh, efficient attacking creatures. And if you lose some creatures in combat, well, you got at least you got some damage through because you'd have more creatures than your opponent and they swarmed around the blockers. And then also you're getting some rewards for your creatures dying as well. So it all kind of comes together in this aggressive deck that kind of feels like rats swarming around, which is really cool. Okay, next up is Red Green, which is uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, Red Green, I think, didn't have a very strong theme coming out of Vision. It was a little bit up in the air, what we wanted it to do. And one of the things I noticed is that there was already a lot going on in the set. And, you know, we'll, we'll see that as we get to the other archetypes as well. But all the other archetypes had pretty unique things going on. So I wanted to have one archetype that was just a little bit more straightforward, you know, for the Timmy Tammy player or, you know, maybe a player who's, who's newer. This is one of their first sets. Um, so what we decided to do is just go with big creatures as the theme. So we have rewards for having creatures with power four or greater. We've got some cards that help you ramp up into them. But Red Green's really meant to be sort of the straightforward uh, deck that's just about having big stuff and attacking your opponent. Okay, next up, Green White, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Right, so in an enchantment-themed set, you know, what better color pair to care about enchantments than green and white? Those are traditionally the colors that care the most about enchantments, so that's what we did here. So this is the deck that sort of uses the roles in the most straightforward way, just, you know, putting auras onto your creatures, having enchanted creatures, caring about enchantments entering the battlefield. So, again, pretty straightforward uh, creature-based deck that just cares about getting enchantments into play and enchanting your creatures. Okay, next up is white-black, which is snow-white. I talked a little bit about this one earlier, how white-black is the deck that likes bargain the most. And in order to hook into bargain, uh, we give you triggers that care about things going to the graveyard from the battlefield. So whether those are enchantments or your creatures, things like that. And then, of course, since you're caring about things going to the graveyard, we also peppered a few cards that can bring things back from the graveyard. Uh, unfortunately, rolls don't stay in the graveyard when they go to the graveyard. They will count as an enchantment going to the graveyard, but you know then they kind of disappear because they're a token. So we didn't give you a lot of bringing enchantments back from the graveyard because so many of our enchantments in the set are roles themselves however there's a little bit of that there's also some recurring creatures as well so it's mostly about things you know things dying things going to the graveyard things coming back from the graveyard and so on okay next up is blue red the sorcerer's apprentice yeah so one of the other things we noticed coming out of vision is that a lot of the set's themes focus on permanence, right? You've got uh, rolls or permanence, uh, your bargaining away permanence, your adventure creatures are spells that become permanence. So we wanted to add in a little bit more focus on things that are not permanent based. So this is our archetype that cares about instants and sorceries, which is often what blue and red do. So it's a similar archetype to what we've done in other sets in the past. So you'll see a lot of familiar things there. But the thing that's probably unique about this time around is that you can use adventures to get an extra density of instants and sorceries into your deck while still having a decent number of creatures. Okay, next is Black Green, Hansel and Gretel. 
Yes, another one we talked about earlier, how we added in a little bit more of a food theme to black and green, um, but we wanted to make sure that you're using the food in different ways. So you can bargain it away. There are cards that explicitly reward you uh, for having food or for sacrificing food and things like that. So you'll do a little bit of eating the food to gain life, um, but a, a lot of it is just using it in other ways to gain an advantage. And at the core of this, beyond the food theme, it's uh, it's a black green mid-range deck. So you'll you have the traditional you know big green creatures with black removal spells. Uh, you can use black recursion spells to bring back your big creatures and keep hammering on your opponent uh, and hopefully win the game a little bit later on. Okay, next up, red-white is Cinderella. Yep, this is at its core a red-white aggressive deck. It's not about going super wide. It's not a tokens deck, and it's not necessarily a ton of small creatures, but it is about being aggressive early in the game. And the core mechanic here is Celebration, which cares about multiple non-land permanents entering the battlefield, two non-land permanents entering the battlefield in the same turn. Um, and so some different ways you can do that. Of course, rolls are one of the best ways. If you play a creature that makes a roll, uh, yeah, that's two permanents right there. Or some of the you know, some of the rolls are pretty cheap to make, like on a cheap adventure. You can make a roll, then play a different creature, a different permanent from your hand. Uh, also plays pretty well with equipment. Um, so lots of various ways that we snuck into the set to kind of cheat the, the two permanents per turn thing and uh, get those triggers pretty easily. And then what do you do when you get those triggers? You attack your opponent with your creatures that are temporarily enhanced. Okay, and finally, green-blue, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk. This was another one that didn't have full definition coming out of Vision, um, so we kind of figured out over time what we wanted this to be. Um, and just looking at the other archetypes, aside from red-green, there wasn't too much about going tall in the set, having big stuff. So we wanted to do another sort of rampy archetype here, um, and we decided that the, the key thing would be rewarding you for casting spells with mana value 5 or greater. Um, so in addition to being the ramp archetype, this is also an archetype that really loves the adventure creatures, probably the most out of all of the archetypes. And the reason for that is the adventure creatures lets you get a higher density of high mana value creatures in your deck. Normally it would be a really bad idea to put, you know, say six plus creatures that cost five mana into your deck because your deck will just be too top heavy, you won't have enough action early in the game and you'll just get run over. But by having adventure creatures, we get to put cheap adventures that help you survive the early game or progress your board in the early game or maybe even uh, ramp your mana a little bit. And then later on, then you can cast those big creatures, get something huge on the board, get rewarded for having lots of mana and trigger all your rewards that care about mana value five or greater. Okay, so we're almost, uh, I see my desk from here, so we're almost done. Any final thoughts on, on Wild Eldrin, stuff that we didn't talk about or any sort of larger thought about the making of it? Just in general, this is one of the sets that I've worked on recently that I'm the most excited to see, you know, come out in, in the real world and see how people interact with it. I think the the fairy tale theme came through really, really well. We did that unique thing of making, you know, each of the different archetypes tell a story. So I'm curious how that translates to players' experiences with the set. Uh, and in general, it's just a really fun, lighthearted, whimsical set, which is kind of a nice break from some of the, you know, maybe darker, more, uh, you know, uh, terrifying <laughs> themes that we've had recently. So it'll be a nice breath, breath of fresh air. And I'm really excited to see how people interact with it. Well, I just want to thank you for being with us, Ian. This was a lot of fun talking through the set design. Yeah, this was great, Mark. Thanks again for having me. I'm always, always happy to be here. I'll chat anytime. So, uh, guys, uh, I'm at my desk, so we all know that means. That means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to make in magic. So I want to thank Ian for being here, and we'll see all of you guys next time. Bye-bye.